verses 17 through 26, and I'll be reading from the ESV. On one of those days, as he was preaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst of Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this that speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your, in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins, uh, your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to, on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been laying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they were glorifying God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. Thank you, Kelly, for reading that rather lengthy passage, but I wanted to get that whole thing in front of you before we uh, got into our study uh, this morning. I also want to thank Tucker, along with others, and stepping in and leading our singing in such a fine fashion this morning. It really shouldn't surprise us. The man has some musical skills, considering the last name is Presley. (laughs) Thank you for getting that, by the way. I I could just envision me saying that and hearing crickets chirping, you know. So thank you, Tucker. Thank you very much. Y'all really got it. <laughs> it has been said that Matthew 22 contains the great command, commandment and Matthew 28 contains the great commission. I want us to focus our attention for a few minutes together this morning on that scriptural mandate. In poetic terms, that mandate has been expressed like this. Thou must save another soul if thou wouldst save thine own. For heaven's doors are closed to those who come alone. I think there's something to be said for that. A part of being a disciple is recognizing that it's not all about me. It's about everybody else that needs to hear the good news of the gospel, to come to God for salvation, and then to have that hope, that certainty of living with God in heaven someday. Jesus said in Mark 16, 15, go preach the gospel to every creature. That gets everybody. Jeremiah once said in the Old Testament, but then I said... I will not speak any more, I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, but his word was in my heart as a burning fire, shut up in my bones, and I was weary with forbearing, and I could not stray. Jeremiah was looking for a place to turn in his prophet license, but he said, I couldn't do it. I couldn't stop preaching. I couldn't stop telling God's message because of that burning fire. And I'm here to ask you this morning, is that fire burning in your bones if you are a New Testament Christian this morning? Are you so glad that somebody shared the, good, the saving news of the, of the gospel with you that, 
that it is your ambition and your objective as a child of God that you want to be able to share that good news with others and win others to the Lord. Must I go and empty-handed, we sometimes sing. Must I meet my Savior so, not one soul with which to greet him. Must I empty-handed go. In Luke chapter 5, in the text that was just read, I see some guys who wanted to help a friend. And let me observe that that's where real soul winning starts. It's a sincere desire to help someone. This is not to take something away from them. It is not to certainly harm them in any way. It's not to manipulate someone. It's a sincere desire to help someone with the greatest need in all of time and eternity. And that's the salvation of the human soul. Let's look for a moment at the background of the text. I think it will appreciate, cause us to appreciate it even more. If you go back to look at verse 1 of, of Luke chapter 5, the chapter begins with, so, so it was as the multitude pressed about him, and of course the hymn there is Jesus, to hear the word of God, that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret, and of course that's just another name for the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is at this moment at the height of his popularity and his personal ministry, and people are thronging to hear him and to see him. And as the chapter begins, Jesus is using Peter's boat as as somewhat of a a pulpit to preach to the people who are gathered on the shoreline. He then, I suppose, as kind of a payback, a reward for using Peter's boat, tells Peter and his companions, if you'll just go back out and let down your nets for a catch. Well, Peter at first expresses some doubt about whether or not that's going to work, whether we fished all night, he said. And we haven't caught anything. And so there's, there's some doubt in his mind as to whether even what Jesus is commanding him to do will work. But then there, I've got a whole sermon on this. I've preached at other times. But there is one of the great faith statements expressed in all of Scripture. If you look at verse 5, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. That's real faith, isn't it? Even though we may say say in our minds, I don't see how that's going to work or that defies all of my previous experience, Peter says, nevertheless, at your word. And I hope that every one of us can get to the point in our spiritual maturity where we can say, even though I don't understand it, nevertheless, at your word, I will. So they go back out, the text says, and let down their nets and catch so many fish that the nets are breaking. And then they fill their boats so full of fish that the boats actually began to sink. That's probably the most successful day of fishing that those guys have ever had. And then he tells those professional fishermen, especially James and John and Peter, verse 10, that from now on, you're going to be catching men. I will make you fishers of men. I I wonder if they fully or even partially understood that uh, predictive expression. And the Bible says in verse 11, so that when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed him. I'm still impacted, no matter how many hundreds of times I've read this passage, that they would walk away from their their obligations, their, their occupations, and they would just follow Jesus without asking any questions. And then starting in verse 12, he then heals a leprous man. And the report of that healing apparently gets around so that the Bible calls it great multitudes came to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. That's verse 15 of this same chapter. He then goes off by himself into the wilderness and spends some solitary time in prayer. That's verse 16. And it was right on the heels of these events that the circumstances of our text take place. I want us to look at the text this morning with our soul winning glasses on. I hope you'll do that for me. Let's look at this with some kind of evangelistic perception in mind. Because I think that there are 
four keys to fulfilling God's great commission here on earth that are found in this text. These are four simple things that the friends of the paralyzed man did that I think serve as wonderful principles that will help us in leading our friends to Christ. So let's begin with number one. That's always a great place to start, isn't it? Principle number one is they, they became concerned for their friend. This is, someone has said, is the principle of compassion. It begins with a compassion for the lost souls around us. If we never have that compassion, then we're never going to have the compulsion to want to share God's saving message. So they were concerned about their friend. Here's that principle stated in more general terms. Romans 15 verse 2 says, Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to his edification. And we know that the word edification in our English uh, language just means to build up. So for his, for his benefit, we need to please our neighbor for his good. That is, we need to have the kind of a perception and the kind of compassion of heart that we're willing to look around and see people who are lost and it's going to bother us until we do something about it. And then Paul in Colossians 4, verses 2 and 3 says, Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Meantime, or meanwhile, praying also for us that God would, and here's where I really want you to notice, where God would, would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ. Paul said, that's what I live for. I'm just asking for you to pray for us that God will open a door that would allow us to bring that saving word to those, to the maximum number of people that we might be able to share it with. Now, this is where effective soul winning begins with a sincere concern for the souls of our friends and family and neighbors. Our text says in verse 18, skip down a few verses. Then behold men brought on a bed, a man who was paralyzed, whom they sought to bring in and lay before him. Think about the implications of that. That couldn't have been easy in the first century world, could it? Now in our world, it's different. Today we have handicap ramps going up at least into public buildings. We have special places to park that are close by whatever business it is that we want to go in and conduct business. We have even motorized wheelchairs. By the way, I, I'm here at the building just about every day, and there are occasions when I see some, some folks from the apartments back here riding their motorized wheelchairs down or across Atlanta Highway. Not to be recommended, but they're available. There are, there are motorized chairs that people can, can ride in. There are electric openers that automatically open the doors for us. But I remind you that back in those days, they had none of those things. But that's really a part of the whole point of this text. If we really want to help somebody out, we're willing to go to some trouble to do it. And these men apparently really wanted to see their friend heal, which indicates the concern and the love that they had for, for this man. Here's a question. Is there someone that we love so very much? that we'll go to some trouble to see them learn the truth and to begin their journey toward heaven? If the answer to that is yes, then you're to be commended and you're to be patted on the back. That is a part of the mandate that the Lord has given to every one of us. That as we go, that we're to carry the gospel and to make disciples of all nations. Remember, remember that movie from some years ago, The Sixth Sense, in which Cole, who was the little boy in that movie, could see dead people. 
And I still remember that one of the quotes that he made right after he, he told someone about his ability to see dead people, he said, and they don't even know they're dead. That kind of describes our world, doesn't it? There are spiritually dead people all around us. And the tragedy, the real tragedy is a lot of them don't even know that they're dead. We need to be able to see the lost around us who, who are dead in sin, and then we need to care enough to do something about it. So the heart of a soul winner begins with sincere concern, sincere compassion. Here's principle number two from Luke chapter 5. They believe Jesus would help their friend. This is the principle of faith. Now, may I state the obvious? If these men did not think that Jesus could help their friend, they would never have gone to all of this trouble to bring him and to put him in a position where Jesus could, could heal him. Apparently, these men had either heard about Jesus or maybe more likely they had actually seen Jesus, maybe with their own eyes, perform some astonishing miracles and to heal people, and now they're convinced that he could do the same thing for their friend. Watch verse 20. Still got your Bible open. Look at verse 20. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to, to him, man, your sins are forgiven you. Clearly, Jesus didn't know his name. Have y'all ever done that, by the way? You see someone, you, ought, you, you feel like you ought to know his name, but you can't come up with it at the, you know, at the last second when the pressure is there. And so you go, man, man, it's good to see you, brother. Man, your sins are forgiven you. Now, here's what I really want us to notice about verse 20. The Bible says when Jesus saw their faith, not the faith of the man who's being brought, but the faith of the men who are doing the bringing. When he saw their faith, then he gave that pronouncement to the man who was paralyzed. Man, your sins are forgiven you. He responded accordingly. Hebrews 7.25 says... And, and, and I'm bringing this principle into the spiritual dimension because that's, that's really the lesson that I want us to think about this morning. Therefore, he, that is Jesus, is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. Let me say that one more time. Therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. My question for us is, do we really believe that? If we do, then we're going to be very interested in sharing the good news with those around us. And if we don't, then we probably have some serious doubts about whether God has the power to save even us. Our own salvation may be in question. Now make no mistake, it takes real faith to be a soul winner. To have that kind of perception and compassion that we're trying to describe this morning. If we don't really believe that those outside of Christ have no hope. If we don't really believe that Christ is not just a way that he is the way to salvation. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Acts 4 verse 12 says, if we don't really believe that if we don't do something about the state of this lost world, the job isn't going to be get done. Because there's nobody else in this, on this planet who can, who are equipped to do that other than God's people and that's us. If we don't really believe that Christ has no hands but our hands, to do his work today. He has no feet but our feet to lead men in his way. He has no tongue but our tongue to tell men how he died. He has no help but our help to lead them to his side. And ultimately we have to have enough faith to really believe that when we carry people to the foot of the cross, Jesus has not only the power but the willingness to take them home from there. 
So a soul winner's heart begins with sincere concern. It is then moved by genuine faith. Here's principle number three from Luke chapter 5. They didn't just pray for their friend. They actually did something about it. They actually brought him to Jesus. This is the principle of action. You know, this is, I think, a great deal like a principle from Numbers 21 that we've talked about here before. You remember that scenario where the people, the Israelite people, are... Wandering in the wilderness, this is after, of course, they've been liberated from Egyptian bondage, but now they're, they're wandering in the wilderness. They have no real perception, no real expectations in terms of where they're, they're going to wind up. They've, they've heard some talk, but uh, we've talked about this a great deal. Anyway, they start murmuring. They start complaining. We talked about that a little bit last Sunday morning. They're, they're belly aching at this point, and they're beginning to question the leadership, and, and they're asking Moses, why did you bring us out in, in, here to the wilderness to die? We'd rather have stayed in Egypt in bondage there. And on and on they went until God heard enough of that, and he sent down poisonous snakes to get their attention. And every time I preached on this text, I, I always admit that would have gotten my attention. And so snakes are are raining down from heaven. And the people, some of them are being bitten. And as soon as they recognize how foolish and how ungrateful that they had been, the Bible says they began to beg Moses to petition God on their behalf. We need some relief from this. Well, Moses did that. And then at God's direction, the Bible says, you can read all of this, of course, in Numbers 21, that he erected that, that brass snake, put it on a pole in the middle of the camp with the instructions that whoever was bitten by a venomous snake, if you will look upon that brazen serpent, you will live. Very simple instructions. You didn't have to have a doctor's prescription or anything. All you had to do, if you were bitten by a poisonous snake, was look upon that, that brass snake and, and, and you would live. I think we all appreciate two fundamental facts about that particular account. Number one, they needed to do something. But, but their action needed to be predicated upon their faith. Number one, they had to believe that if they looked on that brazen serpent that they would live. So if they didn't believe that, they weren't obviously going to go to any trouble to actually do anything about it. But the second part of that process, of course, was to do something about what they believed. So if they really believed what Moses had said God told him to tell the people, then they're going to be moved to actually do something about it. So number one, they've got to believe it. Number two, they've got to do something. They've got to act. If for whatever reason, it doesn't matter what the reason was. If you're lying on the edge of the camp, it's maybe a mile and a half across the camp, remember the snake is in the middle of the camp, so they're going to have to either travel or be carried some distance in order to just look upon us. If somebody says, here I am in the, in the throes of death, I am too, it's too painful for anyone to move me, whatever the reason might be, if they did not look on the snake, dig a grave, he's a dead man. That was the reality of that situation. And and that's the way true faith is portrayed throughout Scripture. James reminds us over and over again, especially in James chapter 2, almost the entirety of that chapter is given to a discussion of the correlation, the corresponding nature of faith and works. And you know that as a a student of the Bible. What he said was, verse, verse 14, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith... That is, faith that hasn't acted. Can that faith save him? 
And then verses 15 and 16 follow up that thought. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not do give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Well, James, those are all really good questions. And then he concludes that thought in verse 24 by saying, you see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. I think we see that same dynamic at play here in Luke chapter 5. Didn't really matter how convinced they were that Jesus could do something wonderful for their friend. If they did not do something to help him, then he would have stayed in that wheelchair or maybe confined to a six-by-six plot of ground where he would beg passerbys for, for bread, and that's what he would do for the rest of his earthly existence. Now, don't get me wrong. With what I'm about to say, there is nothing wrong with praying for our lost friends. There's a great deal to commend it. We need to be praying for the lost of this world. And we need to be specifically praying for the lost that we know in our circle of acquaintance. In fact, I believe we ought to be calling names, praying for people that we know need to hear the saving message of the gospel. But I also need to say this in light of this text. There comes a time when we need to stop praying and do something in order to bring about an answer to those prayers. Does that make sense? It's kind of like when Ananias went to see Saul at God's behest. And I remind you that Ananias didn't want that. He didn't want to do it. And I can't blame him. I would not have wanted that visitation card either, would you? I want you to go talk to this man who's been killing fellow Christians. Oh, I'm getting that visitation card. And and, and so he goes and he talks to him. Remember what he said. This is after Saul has been praying and fasting for three days. He said, what are you waiting for? Arise and be baptized. Wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. That's the Acts 22.16 version. That's what he needed to hear at that moment. Saul could have stayed there praying and fasting until he died. And he would have been no closer to God. No closer to making his relationship with God what it needed to be. So what are you waiting for? Get up and do something about it. Now's the time to stop praying and and start acting. There's no doubt that being interested in the souls of others requires some effort. And I think this text indicates that in a powerful way. Luke 14, 23 says this. And the master said to the servant, go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. Please appreciate that among the many lessons that can be gleaned from that verse, one of them is you've got to get out of the church building. You've got to go out to where the people are. We cannot do just church building evangelism. We've got to go out where people actually are, and we've got to influence them and, and share with them this message and do whatever we can to point them toward heaven. May I remind you that going out into the highways and the hedges requires turning off the television set and getting out of our recliners. But these men in this text had enough active interest in the welfare of their friend that they were willing to do whatever it took to bring him into contact with the healing power of Jesus. Paul said in Colossians 4, 5, Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time, buying up the time, because time is running out, the clock is ticking. So to be a successful soul winner, with real concern for the lost is perpetuated by a solid faith, that's where we started this discussion, 
that Jesus can save the souls of those who are lost. It is actuated by actively bringing our friends into a situation where they can be touched by Jesus and spiritually healed. And remember, these friends in this text are motivated only by physical concerns. They just wanted to see their friend who could, know, could never walk. They wanted to see him healed so that he could walk again. They have come for the lesser blessing of physical healing. Surely our concern for the eternal souls of others ought to motivate us to be bringing people to Jesus. Fourth and finally, they did not let difficulties discourage them. This is the principle of determination. Look again quickly at the text. When they got there with their paralyzed friend, the crowd was so great that they could not get him in the door. We all know how this text plays out. And so they took him up on the rooftop, they made a hole in the tiling, and they let him down through the roof. Now, in those days, the top of the, of the house was typically flat, and so that's good. There's not a, you know, a, a very steep pitch to, to the house, and, and they could probably reach the, the roof by an outside set, set of stairs. That was the way houses were constructed in those, in those days. And so the large pieces of covering or tiles could be easily removed, and then later they could be replaced so that there wasn't lasting damage to the house. So that's what they did. And they lowered their friend down into the house right in front of Jesus, the text says. Now think about that. That took some doing. They had to apparently devise a system of ropes that would allow them to basically repel their friend down from the roof into the room, and that couldn't have been easy. Think of it in these terms. There were a number of options available to those men that day. Number one, they could have stayed at home, and left their friend where he was. Just don't bother to do anything at all. That's option number one. Option number two is that they could have brought him to the house where Jesus was, found that immense crowd that couldn't even get in the house, decided it wasn't worth the effort, and taken him back home. Or at the very least, left him there by the door. Option number two. Option number three is, if they had been incredibly persistent and not easily dissuaded, they could have carried him up to the roof, tried to find a way in there, found no way, and given up. Folks, I'm telling you that true faith and real determination will make a hole where there was no hole. As recently, I think, as last Sunday, I mentioned the Marshall Keeble quote. He said, uh, if God tells me to jump through a brick wall, it's my responsibility to jump, God's responsibility to make a hole. That's, that certainly applies to this text. True faith will make a hole where there was no hole. We're willing to go to some trouble to bring our friends to Jesus. And it's because of that fact that those men were not easily discouraged. Here we are 2,000 years later on a beautiful Sunday morning still talking about them. What a legacy of faith and tenacity. You know, there are all kinds of applications available to us in the spiritual arena. When Jesus first gave the Great Commission to his disciples in Matthew 28 and Mark chapter 16, he did not follow up that commission by saying, I want you to go preach the gospel to every creature. And at the end, he said, and by the way, this is it will be easy. This is going to be a cakewalk. You're not going to have any problems. He, didn't, he never said that. He never told them that carrying the gospel to the world was going to be easy. And I'm here to tell you what you already know, that soul winning sometimes isn't easy. In fact, sometimes it may be the hardest thing you will ever do to open your mouth and to speak a word for Jesus. But I'm also telling you, church, it will 
be worth it. When we see our friends give their lives to the Lord and have their sins washed away in his blood. And wonder of wonders, some folks that I know of don't just invite their friends to church. They'll go over to their place and spend their time, burn their gas to bring them to church. That happens. Just opening our mouths and beginning a spiritual conversation isn't, isn't easy. Approaching our friends or family with just a simple invitation may require some trouble on our part. Now, I don't, I don't even pretend to know all there is to know about leading people to Jesus. But I do know this. God, God does not want anyone to perish. He wants everyone to come to repentance. 2 Peter 3 verse 9 tells us that very plainly. And if I'm not just a fan of Jesus, I am a sincere follower, I'm going to want the same thing. I'm going to want to see people thronging into the, as, as my brother Harold Taylor used to say, we've gotten to the point in the church today where we're just baptizing people who turn themselves in at the church office. Folks, we can't be that passive. We've got to be more active in carrying the word to the lost world. And often soul winning begins with just a simple conversation in the most ordinary circumstances. I've told you the story before of a, na- a man by the name of Wallace Hostetter from Rochester, Michigan, who went to get a haircut one day, and his barber was a young Muslim woman. And in the course of the conversation, he told her that he was a preacher, that he believed in Jesus Christ and tried to the best of his ability to follow him faithfully, and that later that very same day, it was his responsibility to go and to speak at the funeral of a friend. Well, the young woman replied, you know, once I was supposed to cut a dead man's hair, and they told me they would pay me $150, but I didn't do it. And the preacher said, well, why not? And she said, I don't like to touch the dead. I'm afraid they'll sit up. And he said, I know one who did. And she said, ooh, you're kidding. And he said, no, I'm not. And then he told her about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and what that can mean to our eternal destiny. And when the haircut was done, she asked, are you going to keep coming back here? And he said, yes, I am. You give a good haircut. She said, good, because I want to know more. A simple conversation can open a door of salvation to someone that you and I know. Vance Havner said, the gospel is not something we come to church to hear. It is something that we leave church to tell. Amen to that. Back when they had such things, an elevator operator in Nashville, Tennessee, used every available opportunity to get to know the staff at the hospital, to invite them and those who were visiting the hospital to church and to Bible studies. And someone once asked him why he went to the trouble to do that. He said, I'm just a nobody telling everybody about somebody who can save anybody. That's our calling. This morning, we are specifically interested in you. If you're not a part of the Lord's forever family, his spiritual kingdom, his church, the Bible says that based on your sincere faith, you turn your back on sin in repentance, confess Jesus as God's son, you can be baptized into Christ where his his blood will cover every one of your sins, and he'll add you to the church this morning while we stand, while we sing. the Lamb. Are you fully trusting in His grace this